it's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. Recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. And don't forget to follow us on the Twitter tag at bzetechshow. My name is Michael Steindl and today I'm joined by my co-host Natalie Bucknell. Hello Michael. G'day and Kay Winnegall. Hi Mike. G'day Kay. Today we are talking to Professor James Medicraft from Colleton University in Ottawa. Canada. Professor Metacraft holds a Canada Research Chair in Governance for Sustainable Development. He is a professor in both the Department of Political Science and the School of Public Policy and Administration. We'll be talking about his research focusing on the ways governments are adjusting their practices and policies to cope with the emergence of problems of the environment and sustainable development, and also on the politics and policy of carbon capture and storage. Welcome Professor Metacraft. Hi, nice to be with you here today. And thank you for joining us. There's a beautiful Skype line here. Let's start with sustainable development. Classically defined as meeting the needs of this generation without compromising the needs of the next, sustainable development can be thought of as having three pillars, the environment, the economy, and society. This can, however, lead to a two out of three ain't bad philosophy, which seems to be the way many countries handle this. What are your thoughts on this? Yes, um, I think it's quite true. Sustainable development, like um, lots of other concepts in political life, is constantly subject to struggle over definitions. Um, think about an idea like freedom. <laughs> we, we certainly have plenty of time to disagree about, about what that means. And the same is with sustainable development. Um, often countries um, kind of privilege the economy, and maybe they'll talk a bit about uh, the social objectives too. Um, but secondarize uh, the environmental dimension, which, as you said, sounds a bit like two out of three ain't bad. Mm -hmm. And here I'm talking particularly of the, the rich industrialized countries where the environment really is in many ways the weakest pillar of sustainable development. I'd, I'd like to comment also on the, um, the short definition, the kind of classic definition from the Brundtland report that you gave about meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future people to meet their needs. Yeah. Everybody quotes that, that passage, and of course it is important, but people don't, often don't mention the, the rest of the paragraph, which basically says sustainable development has within it two key concepts. One is the concept of basic needs to which the basic needs of the poor should be given absolute priority. And the second is the concept of limits, uh, limits to the capacity of the environment uh, to support our, our activities. And those two ideas, um, the first one really, which is about social equity, about putting, meeting basic needs before kind of luxuries, um, and mm. the idea of limits, which yeah. is recognizing um, that the planet cannot sustain everything we can throw at it. Um, I sometimes talk about as the two awkward ideas of sustainable development, and they tend to get mentioned considerably less often. Mm. Maslow's theory, making sure people have got food and security. 
first. You, you draw a distinction between sustainable development and sustainability, don't you? What, how does, what's that distinction? Well, usually, um, I mean, I use the term sustainability, um, but I take sustainable development as kind of the basic one. Sustainability is a, is a shorthand for sustainable development. Um, the reason I think sustainable development, and this was really the, the kind of innovation of our common future, which came out almost exactly 30 years ago, um, the key idea is that with sustainable development, um, you can ask the question, what is it that is to be sustained? Is it a particular environmental feature or a particular way of life or an institution or a company like Coca-Cola or something? Um, people can have sustainable almost anything. But sustainable development emphasizes that what we're after sustaining is the process of human development. And here development is a deliberately normative term. It means improving society, if you like, it's progress. Mm -hmm. And that can be material or moral or educational advance or scientific advance or what have you. So sustainable development is really asking the question, how can we continue to make society um, better off, uh, more healthy, better education, more ethically sound and so on? Um, and uh, yeah, uh, James, I think you um, said that the Canadian government calls it now responsible resource development. Is that correct? Well, actually, the sustainable the um, I think the piece that you're referring to um, was written a little while ago when we had a conservative government uh -huh. uh, under Stephen Harper, and yep. they basically wanted to kind of airbrush out various earlier government engagements around sustainable development. So they kind of instructed their civil servants to talk about responsible resource development. Mm -hmm. um, and I have to say, being a bit cynical, what responsible resource development really turned out to be is develop everything, dig everything out of the ground as fast as you possibly can, and don't give a damn about anything else. Oh, that sounds like Australia. Uh, because it would be irresponsible to leave it in the ground when we could make money off it real quick. <laughs> exactly. Um, That's when that government of yours was in in very close partnership with our equally evil Abbott government here. Um, yes, and I think um, it gave Canada rather a, a not a very good reputation. I can say from traveling overseas, people mm. would say, oh, you're from Canada? Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, but uh, since the Trudeau government was elected about a year ago, uh, that's a liberal uh, party government, um, the government has been taking climate change um, much more seriously and, and other um, environmental issues. Um, and they're gradually, I think, trying to undo some of the harm that was done under the, the previous administration. Yeah, we haven't actually managed to make that transition. We did swap the head of the government with a, a guy in a nicer suit and a nicer face, but um, he's basically still pursuing the same policies. You talked about the Canadian government making some changes recently with the change in government itself. Can you give us a bit of an idea of what the changes have been so far? Um, yes. Um, under the previous Conservative government, really, particularly on climate change, the, the Prime Minister and the government were not convinced that it was a problem we, we could we should do something about so one of the first things the Trudeau government did was have a more pro positive po profile at the um, Paris uh, climate summit and the government is now engaged in discussions with the provinces and also um, 
unrolling its own federal uh, climate change initiatives. So recently, the, the Prime Minister announced that Canada would be in developing uh, a system of uh, carbon taxes, uh, and um, it would be done in consultation with the provinces and provinces that had their own scheme, either a cap-and-trade scheme or a carbon tax. That would be fine, but any uh, province that didn't have um, a climate pricing regime, then the federal government would impose one uh, unilaterally. Um, the government has also uh, recently re released a long-term climate um, it's not really a strategy, but it's more like a position paper looking forward to 2050 and how Canada could achieve deep uh, CO2 reductions between 70 and 90 percent, which is the first time that the government has ever kind of looked forward beyond the kind of 2020, 2030 mm. uh, framework. So that's also quite positive. Mm. That's excellent. You say that we have to put living beyond our environmental limits at the core of the political debate. There are some limits that we ignore at our own peril, as well as targeting the extensive growth economy. But the problem with limits is that they're uncertain and they're complex and there's a whole lot of them and they all interact. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you believe that sustainable development is compatible with a market economy. Is that correct? Um, well, that is a kind of $64,000 question, isn't it? Um, Sustainable development isn't compatible with the way that we run market economies today. Um, that that is is clearly true. For the large part, we've over the past couple of hundred years, we've pursued um, uh, an economic growth trajectory based on fossil fuels, and we know now that that's doing irreparable harm to the the atmosphere. So we know we have to kick fossil fuels. Um, uh, and move over to renewables and other non-emitting energy sources. Um, but of course, there are lots of other sustainability problems that relate to water use and agriculture and chemical releases and nitrogen and, and so on and so on. Um, I, I believe that in principle, it should be possible to have a market economy um, that um, decouples um, economic growth from environmental burdens. Um, but whether or not we can get there is uh, a complicated political question because in all these reforms, it's not as if we're just trying to paint on a blank canvas. There are groups, uh, institutions, um, businesses um, who are doing very well under the current conditions and so are trying to slow a transition to sustainability as fast as we're trying to encourage it. So politics is a key variable here and really the question of can one build political coalitions which are able to leverage um, economic activity onto more sustainable lines, which basically means we have to reduce um, dramatically the the material pressures that are causing environmental problems, such as uh, burning fossil fuels. Well, this is um, a bit confusing then because the market economy does rely on infinite growth currently and you're saying that um, that has to be decoupled and you also say that governments don't have the power necessarily to be able to make those sort of changes. How do you think that, can, that this can come about? Well, um, 
there, when you make the link between, uh, if you like, a capitalist economy or a market economy and environmental destruction, there's several links in that in that chain. So you would have to break some of those uh, links. So, for instance, uh, you said one thing that a market economy is inseparable from economic growth. Um, probably. Though there are uh, a number of uh, kind of environmental thinkers like Herman Daly who believe in a steady state economy, um, but believe you could have it uh, un in a market economy if you had certain institutions um, that prevented um, growth of material throughputs and material pressures. Um, Another way of saying, I, I mean, another th possibility is that you could continue to have economic growth, but this growth would be substantially dematerialized or at least depressurized in the sense that the, the growth wouldn't involve um, ever-increasing pressures on the environment. So thinking about it another way, when one's talking about economic growth, in one sense, one's talking about economic figures like gross national product, which is you know, if you're talking about profits or figures of GNP or something like that, it's money, which in a sense is, is abstract. It depends what are the physical processes that are required to keep that, um, those quantities of money um, rising. Um, so if we just take climate change, could you imagine uh, an economy that is largely decoupled from uh, continuing uh, GHG emissions? but still has some conventional economic growth? I think you probably can. Uh, and the reason is because it's the fossil fuels, stupid. In other words, mm -hmm. uh, if you uh, don't burn fossil fuels, but get all your energy from some other uh, source, say solar or something like that, mm -hmm. you can at least manage the, climate the pressure on the climate system. Um, so it doesn't matter if energy use doubles if your energy is not putting pressure on the climate, on the climate system. Well, there are arguments now that um, we've gone and used up our carbon budget totally, essentially, and then we have to draw back on the amount of carbon that we're em emitting. So reducing our reliance on fossil fuels won't necessarily do all the heavy lifting. Well, I think something like 80% of uh, uh, the kind of pressures on climate change are energy related. So if you just stop, I mean, don't use fossil fuels, there aren't going to be any greenhouse gases coming from the energy system. I mean, there are other problems. There are emission, industrial emissions and there are also agriculture um, and there's some other, and there's deforestation and so mm -hmm. on. So those are all separate problems. But if you decarbonize the energy system, you've gone a long way towards solving the problems. I'm not saying you also need solutions to the other ones too. Yep. For those of you who have just joined us, you're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Show and we're talking to Professor James Meadowcraft from Canada about the policies and practices of managing climate change. So, Professor Meadowcraft, one of the strands of your research focuses on social technical, socio-technical transitions. Could you explain what you mean by this and why it's important? So, um, if we look at the development of uh, human societies, one can see that um, obviously, technology is critically important um, and that at certain periods of time, we go through quite important changes in the technologies that we use. Um, and of course, this is kind of of interest uh, in relation to environmental problems and particularly in the case of, say, something like uh, 
uh, climate change, where we know we've got to change our energy technologies if we're going to move towards uh, uh, decarbonization. Generally, what one can see is that um, if we think about kind of technological progress, mostly uh, the pro most of the time the progress is based on incremental improvements to a technology that's well established. But by increasing the capacity of a technology just one or two percent a year, one can continue to make uh, kind of important progress, either getting costs down or improving performance and so on. But more rarely, we make an actual switch to another technology, uh, kind of like moving from one horse to another. So a good example of that, I mean, a kind of simple example is the idea of moving from sailing ships to steamships. Sailing ships were the kind of uh, dominant uh, mode for ocean transportation for um, hundreds of years. But then at a certain point, and it actually took a while, it took something like 80 years or so, um, ocean transport shipped, sh shifted to um, steamships. And steamships obviously have lots of advantages, but in the early days, they were actually slower than the sailing ships. Um, but they had, of course, one big advantage, which was that they could sail even if there was no wind. Um, so that's an example of such a socio-technical transition, but there are many others. So the development of the modern automobile is, is one really good example. So how does this relate to dealing with the problem of climate change? Well, um, as I mentioned, in order to get uh, de decarbonization, we really need to push technological innovation. So if you think about human societies, basically the rise um, of uh, kind of modern civilization with uh, our relatively high life expectancy and all the modern conveniences we know really is based on uh, fossil energy. Up until about 1800, the main sources of energy that powered uh, human society were animal muscle power, uh, human muscle power, some wind, if you think about windmills and sailing mm -hmm. ships, and um, bioenergy, so burning, burning wood and things like that. But suddenly, with the Industrial Revolution, we were able to harness energy that had been laid down over tens or even hundreds of millions of years. In a sense, that energy, too, is solar, ultimately solar energy, but it's energy embodied in plants, which are then crushed down, or, or animals, in the case of oil, crushed down and over millions of years transformed into this fossil energy resource. Um, so it's given us like a supercharged boost in the development of our technological civilization, but now we realize at a great cost of driving climate change. So really what we need to, one of the things we need to look at is how to alter these technologies. So for instance, the shift to um, renewable energy, instead of burning coal or, uh, or oil or gas, we should be moving towards wind power and solar power and so on. But what we can see with these socio-technological transitions is that there are all sorts of obstacles to achieving cha change um, because a technology becomes locked in to a set of social institutions. A technology is not just uh, kind of an instruction book and, and, and some piece of some devices or something like that. It's embedded in society in terms of patterns of usage, um, in terms of the models of businesses, consumer expectation, how the insurance market works, um, training, schools, and so on. So, I mean, a good example is the automobile. 
Um, in the late um, 1800s, just the beginning of the 20th century, there was a period of about 20 years of really intensive competition among alternative plans for what an automobile could look like. And if you look in the history books, it included things like, you know, you had four-wheelers and three-wheelers and two-wheelers, you had tracked vehicles, you had cars running on electricity or on steam, on uh, alcohol, and of course you had internal combustion engines. So what you had was competition, um, quite intense competition between entrepreneurs trying to get their idea taken up. And finally, it settled down to an internal combustion engine um, basically running uh, on gasoline with uh, four wheels. And that basic model um, has existed, um, you know, almost basically for the following century. So our cars in some way are follow the same basic model that was established in the first years of the 20th, the 20th century. On the other hand, of course, they've been improved in many ways. We have headlights and windshield wipers and better motors and pollution control equipment on them. And now we have in-car entertainment systems and so on. But what we call the dominant design was settled very, very early. And now this model ha is largely locked in. So you think about how automotive engineers are trained and all the patents that the companies control around the internal combustion engine and so on. So there's great resistance to change. In particular, the, the companies that dominate the scene are not so eager to move, say, to electric vehicles or something mm. because a lot of their physical plant, but above all their intellectual capital, is kind of made useless if the car changes in any sort of, of radical way. Yep. So, so, James, we live in a neocon era when, when that's the dominant meme, basically the thought being um, that's won the day is that government should be as small as possible. Stepping outside that, looking at, at and bearing in mind the, the things you just talked about, what can and should governments be doing? Well, um, partly because these socio-technical transitions face lots of obstacles. In the case of um, this particular transition represented by decarbonisation, um, it's clear that there's no... It, it's not going to be driven by immediate quest for, for, for profit, if you like, though mm. companies, it's, it's going to require a public policy push um, because this, we know we're damaging the climate. Um, so what can government do on that front? All sorts of things. I mean, uh, you can think about um, regulations, which can, for instance, Canada has recently uh, taken moves to remove uh, coal from its generation mix. On the province of Ontario uh, did this about 10 years ago. They announced that they would be phasing out coal, which then made about 20, between 20 and 25% of the electricity generated in the province. And over a decade, they have closed all the coal plants. And about last year, the last uh, coal plant shut in Ontario. So coal has been tr completely driven out of the generation mix. And one of the things that the new Trudeau government recently announced is that they were bringing forward to uh, 2030 the final phase out of all coal for electricity generation in Canada. Yeah, we've so that's a regulatory that. thing. Carbon pricing is another set of policy measures that one could use that gives kind of incentives to businesses and so on to adopt lower carbon options. Um, but I must say, I think a lot of debate has been wasted over carbon pricing. It it it's important, 
but it's unlikely to go the whole way, partly because there are all sorts of pressures on government not to put the carbon price too high, mm -hmm. certainly not as high as it's necessary required, to yeah. make the transition. Yeah. So I think there are other things governments can do, like feed-in tariffs, as they did in Germany, and other things to encourage demand for uptake for renewable energies. And I think that the automobile sector, the transport sector, is now one of the kind of key battlegrounds going forward. Um, electric vehicles offer, essentially, we have the technology, but we need to drive down the cost. And to do that, we need greater uptake. Um, Norway, for instance, um, now something like almost a third of vehicle sales in Norway are electric vehicles, though it's still only a three or four percent of the whole vehicle fleet. Mm. But it's growing very rapidly. Um, of course, you need to push your decarbonization of your electricity system. It's not so good if you're getting your electricity yeah. off coal. Particularly but here in Victoria, yeah, with the brown coal. Yes, yes. But nevertheless, in many countries, EVs would be a, a great step forward. And so um, I'm in favor of government giving generous subsidies to people who buy EVs, uh, making parking in the cities free. Uh, Norway has a whole suite of policies that, that's that's um, driving this. One of the reasons I say it's important is it's not the cheapest carbon reductions that you could achieve in the short term, but it's of great political significance to weaken the market share of petroleum in the transport sector. Transport is the area where the fossil fuels are probably most dominant. Um, there are alternatives in electricity, um, but so far, very few in transport and air, whether it's air or ship or whatever, or cars or trucking, oil has a stranglehold. So imagine if a third of the cars in, in North America were electric vehicles, people would see how the trend line is going. It would weaken the political influence of uh, the oil companies considerably, slow down new explore, exploration and so on. So politically, it's quite important. Uh, I think, coming over the next decade. So following on from that same theme, the, the problem with uh, the, the meme of small government, a movement that started here in Australia and, and spread worldwide is the concept of recognising that we're in a climate emergency uh, and that's a, a very active campaign here. And part of the philosophy behind that is that um, people will accept government intervention of a sort in an emergency that they won't accept normally so that we can introduce radical um, revisions and regulations and, and even rationing as in um, a war footing. Have you any thoughts on, on this as an approach to get the urgency of action we need? Yeah, I suppose I'm a, a little ambivalent about that. I mean, in one sense, I agree it is a climate emergency. Um, on the other hand, I think... Um, there's some evidence that just telling people things are really bad and it's the situation is desperate isn't necessarily always the best way to mobilize them. I actually think that there's a lot of positive things that can be said about many of the changes that will be coming about as we deal with, um, with climate change. Um, so I actually think that the, the changes that we could make in our cities to make them um, both carbon neutral uh, and also more resilient against uh, the impact of climate change can actually be positive and enhance living conditions and so on. So, I mean, for instance, getting rid of coal, it would be great to get rid of coal independent of climate just, change. Just it on plain causes, health reasons, yes. But, but if you, you, know, if you give people... Of, 
if you give people just that good news and say, look, yeah, we're doing some good things, um, they get in the state of complacency that we utterly can't afford at the moment. Yes, I, I, I did say I was ambivalent. Um, I, I think you have to tell people how um, serious the situation is, um, but I think you also um, you need to show how these changes will ultimately contribute to sustainable development and to making better lives. So I think there's some kind of balance between those two things, I guess I'd say. Um, <clears throat> on that theme and talking about uh, what people can do, what place does sustainable placemaking have in empowering citizens to you know, push for a broader system change? Um, it's a new term to me sustainable placemaking yes. so it's not um my principal area of expertise um but i would say one of the things that we can see is that if you think about sustainable development um it's more concrete to people and more manageable um at a local place-based level um because if you're thinking about planning in a in a small in a municipality or a region or something it's very clear to people um, what the impacts of environmental problems are, what the benefits of uh, certain kinds of development choices are, and so on. And I think it's easier to tie together the economic, the social, and the environmental, uh, if you're thinking, say, in the context of a, a, context of a city, um, where you might be looking at regenerating a, a, a disadvantaged region and you can look at environmental benefits and social benefits that go along with a, uh, a kind of um, an economic regener regeneration plan. As you move up to the international level, things get more complex and abstract. It's very hard for people to see the impact of something decided at, the U at a UN conference on their everyday lives. It's also much harder to coordinate those three dimensions of sustainable development. Um, often, the most successful international agreements are around rather narrow things. So think about something like the agreement to phase out uh, mercury uh, use um, and deal with the environmental consequences of mercury, or you could say the ozone layer or, or protecting the ozone treaty and so on. Um, those in a way, you could almost say at the international, you can deal with one aspect over the whole world, but it's very hard to deal with everything over the whole world. Mm -hmm. So one aspect um, that you do talk about, you've co-authored a book about, is carbon capture and storage as part of the, the solution to climate change. Can you discuss how societies are engaging with this technology currently? So basically, CCS, uh, carbon capture and storage, is you capture uh, the emissions of uh, carbon dioxide that come off uh, combustion or an industrial process, and you then pipe them uh, to some place where they can be stored underground. And so the idea is to put it deep underground. You know, we're talking about a couple of kilometers underground. And then uh, the CCS, sorry, the greenhouse gases don't get into the atmosphere and so therefore are not uh, a driver of, of climate change. Um, most of the elements of this, this technology have been uh, done in industrial processes for some time. I mean, we know how to capture carbon dioxide. Um, 
we also know how to pipe gas around the country in the oil and gas industry and how to eject gas underground. What hasn't really been done is doing this at large scale in an integrated manner to prevent CO2 getting into the atmosphere. And there are a certain number of international demonstration plants, but it's still quite limited. The other thing to say about CCS is it's, it's expensive. Um, so if you're thinking, and there's an energy penalty, if you wanted to apply this, say, to a coal-fired power plant and you wanted to catch the CO2 that comes out the smokestack, it might take perhaps 20%, maybe a bit more, maybe a bit less of the output of the power station in order to catch that. Uh, CO2 and then uh, transport it uh, underground. So there's an energy penalty and it's quite expensive. So what sort of developments are happening around the world on this and, and what sort of rollout is there with large-scale demonstration plants? So the International Energy Agency um, called uh, uh, some years ago for um, a large-scale demonstration program uh, with something like a hundred demonstration plants around the world and large-scale met capturing a megaton of carbon per year from these plants. And the idea was to have all different sorts of facilities, hydrogen upgraders and um, uh, coal-fired power plants and use different sorts of capture technology and so on in order to gain experience in CCS. But this has not actually gone very well and recently they uh, a couple of years back, they revised it down to 30 plants worldwide, and the total actually now is looking more like 15 or maybe 20, but they're not going to meet their, their targets. The head of Shell Resources was here in Australia recently, and he said that carbon capture and storage would could happen overnight if um, companies decided to put their efforts into it. It's just that at the moment governments aren't giving them enough incentive. He was actually complaining about the lack of a, a carbon price. He's saying that's all that's stopping us, just putting in all this carbon capture and storage. Well, Shell is actually uh, one of the companies that's done a lot on this, and they have, for instance, a big plant in Canada called ShellQuest, which is um, – a hydrogen production facility uh, linked to the oil sands, um, which is now in operation. Um, the basics of this technology are known, but you'd have to do a lot more of it in order to get the cost down. But I think I probably agree with his analysis that um, what's happened is that governments have not pursued it uh, ag aggressively. Um, and there are lots of reasons for that. I mean, one is... The, the kind of IEA's call to get this underway came out just around 2008, which was just the, when the recession hit. And these plants are extremely expensive. You, you might spend a bit, they might need a billion dollars of, of subsidy, um, and they might want subsidies during their whole, um, uh, the, their time of operation. Um, and there's also been quite a lot of... That's better. No, it's not. So... Um, Basically, um, governments got a little bit of cold feet around around this. Um, what happened was that the IEA's plan for developing large-scale demonstration projects came out just around the time of the big recession in 2008, and these plants are tremendously expensive, perhaps a billion dollars. And so there was kind of less enthusiasm. Um, I would also say that underlying that is up until very recently – um, governments haven't been 
that interested in doing much about climate change, mm -hmm. perhaps until the Paris Agreement. Um, and so underlying, I would say it's not that CCS doesn't work, um, but it's that governments weren't really to make the effort and put in the money to actually, uh, to actually develop it. And there has been quite a lot of public opposition, um, particularly in countries like Germany. And so basically the German lander, none of them were enthusiastic about hosting projects. And so the government has, has backed off. Uh, Britain, too, has been, despite saying they support it for 10 years, have been unable to support a single large-scale demonstration plant. Mm. James, um, this is a, a thought that's just occurred to me. One of, one of the things that's really worried me about tackling the climate change issue is that we are so far past where we need to be that we actually have to build a, a reverse petrochemical industry, the largest industry we've ever built, to start drawing down carbon dioxide to get back to a safe level. I've, I've sort of not been in favour of CCS because it perpetuates using fossil fuels, but could it be a good thing? Could the same plants that um, sequester the carbon for fossil fuel use then be used to actually capture carbon out of the atmosphere and, and do that reduction that's needed? Yeah, I mean, the, the point that you just raised that um, CCS could prolong the use of fossil fuels is, of course, both its strong point and its weak point. Um, the strong point is that some people will say, well, we don't have renewables aren't developed enough. We need to still use fossil fuels. So that's why CCS might be useful. But then other people say, yeah, well, that's just perpetuating the lock-in and delaying the inevitable and that CCS would siphon off money that we should really be putting into going directly towards renewables. Of course, the other, re other reasons that people are worried about CCS include uh, the risk. What if this stuff comes back up? Is that a problem? Mm -hmm. uh, and so on. But it does address, potentially address yes. negative emissions. Yes. So um, what I was, was going to say there was that CCS has often been, most often in the international literature, been talked about in terms of sticking it on coal-fired power plants. Mm -hmm. Uh, and largely the argument was, well, China and India are building lots of them. So if we have CCS, they'll be able to put these on their power plants. But of course, people in in the UK or Germany are not so enthusiastic about coal-fired power plants anyway. And coal now is taking quite a hit because gas is so cheap in North America and so on. So that use doesn't look so appealing. But what's important to realize is even if CCS was not used on coal power plants, there are at least two other ways that it could be really important. So one is for other industrial process emissions. So there are industrial processes that emit CO2, like cement making. not through combustion, but through the process itself, like making cement mm -hmm. and in steel making and so on. So right now we don't know how to do those processes very well without emitting CO2. So CCS might be useful on those processes. And the other use is the one that you just made about negative emissions. It's possible to deploy CCS to basically take CO2 out of the atmosphere and then, uh, re as you said, reverse the damage we've been doing over the last couple of hundred years. Now, the two there are a number of ways you could do this, but the two most straightforward are air called air capture and uh, BECS, uh, which is biofuel CCS. So the air capture basically works is you just have a kind of big sucker and it literally absorbs the CO2 out of the air uh, and then you uh, stick it underground. 
This is harder than taking it out of the emissions of a power plant because CCS only makes up a small fraction of a percent of normal air. Uh, sorry, CO2 makes up only a small fraction of uh, the air, less than 1%, whereas it's maybe 10% of the emissions from a power plant. So it's harder to do and it would be expensive, but technically it's possible. The advantage then is you wouldn't ship the CO2, you just build these air capture units right on top of the place that you wanted to send it underground. The other way you can do it is that you could do CCS on biofuels. So the way it works is this, you grow the trees, you burn the trees or whatever the bio crop is to generate electricity, so you have electricity, you capture the CO2 that comes off and you put it underground. Next year, more trees grow, they mm. take up more CO2, you capture that CO2 when you burn them, you put it underground. And carrying out this process, you could, in principle, draw down CO2 from the atmosphere. Because you, you're but, actually capturing and reducing it rather than just um, capturing the stuff that you're pulling out of the ground. Correct. Whereas with fossil fuel CCS, you're just preventing the fossil mm. uh, carbon dioxide getting in the atmosphere. Doing it on bioenergy, you're actually taking CO2. The trees absorb it, and then you take it from the trees and put it underground. The, the one thing to realize with this is that it, A, would be a huge scale process, as you suggest, as big as the existing kind of oil economy. And you'd have to do it over decades and potentially 100 years or more if you really want to make a dent on the vast quantities of uh, GHGs that we're putting into the atmosphere today. Professor, it's been a fascinating discussion. We are out of time. Um, thank you so much for, for your input. We've been talking to Professor James Meadowcraft in Canada about the practices and policies to manage climate change. Thanks very much for your time today, James. Where can our listeners find out more about this and any website details of yours? <laughs> okay, you surprised me with that question, so I don't have my website number in my head. But Have you got a website name or anything like that that people um, can Google? Yeah, I, you could say that they could find me at the School of Public Policy at Carleton University. That's probably the easiest. Well, thank you again. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others that we've done, you can go to bze.org.au and click on podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter at BZE Tech Show. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you again next week. It's a product. It's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pantidrum. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.